0: and welcome to EC Honestly with Kayla and Lisa. Here we discuss the ups and downs of working in the field of early childhood education. So listen, hopefully learn, and enjoy. Before we begin, I would just like to acknowledge with gratitude that I am speaking to you from the unceded and traditional territory of the Coast Salish people, including the Kwequitlam, tsleil Squamish, and Stolo peoples. So on today's episode, joining me is Alexandra Inman. Um, Did I pronounce that correctly? It's Inman, but yeah. Inman, sorry, Inman, Alexandra (laughs) Inman. Um, Alexandra, so you're a registered dietitian with the College of Dietitians of British Columbia, and it says that you're currently working for Fraser Health and you accept private, private clients through your own practice, better known as Vancouver Dietitians. So yeah welcome. exactly. Awesome. So welcome. Um I had told you this before when I reached out, but I had the pleasure of attending one of your workshops probably a year and a half, I want to say almost 2 years ago. Um, where you came and you actually spoke to us about diet, nutrition, and helping build healthy eating habits um, with children. And it's like I said, I had had mentioned this to you before as well, um, but it's a workshop that I really enjoyed. And I still refer to even today when I'm speaking um, with parents uh, about, you know, their children or friends with children, when they ask me about questions in regards to, you know, children, their own children and their eating habits. Um, So uh, if you could First, start off maybe by telling us about yourself um, and what inspires you to work in the nutrition industry and why this is such an important field for you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for such a nice introduction and thanks for having me today. I'm very excited to be here. Um, yeah, so for those of you listening, I'm Alex, I'm a dietitian. Um, and I've been a dietitian for a number of years now. And what inspired me to start working in the nutrition industry was um sort of when I was in high school and I was an athlete, I was a swimmer and realizing how much nutrition impacted my performance kind of is where that started. Um, And then I actually job shadowed one of my sister's friends who was a clinical dietitian with Fraser Health as well. Um, And I job shadowed her at Burnaby Hospital. And from that day, seeing the dietitian within the healthcare team and um, the impact that she was having in the hospital setting, I was sold. So I spent the rest of my first year at UBC getting ready to go into the program. Um, And since becoming a dietitian, as you said, Kayla, um, I've been working clinically for Fraser Health as well as accepting private clients through my practice that I started a number of years ago, Vancouver Dietitian. So the best thing that I love about being a dietitian, is really empowering my patients and my clients with the nutrition knowledge that they need to lead healthier and happier lives. Um, And kind of my passion is making nutrition really accessible, easy to understand, kind of like a no nonsense, no gimmicks um, thing for my clients.
0: That's awesome. I love that. Um, And do you work with a lot of children as well and with a lot of families?
1: Yeah, for sure. So clinically through Fraser Health, I've worked with a number of different children for a number of different reasons as well as their families um, and I've worked all the way from like a prenatal kind of mom who's getting ready um, for pregnancy and through pregnancy and through birth as well as kids from birth all the way up till you know kids teens and as they grow into adulthood so I have lots of experience clinically and then I also see some clients as well um, children and their families privately.
0: That's awesome um, so kind of diving into, I guess, working with children and families, um, one of the biggest, I want to say, not struggles, um, but maybe um, diversity that a lot of families, you know, especially in the field of early childhood, that they, you know, the question that they approach us with is, how um, can we go about maybe making suggestions, you know, to families when regarding their children who are, have been, um, Oh my goodness. What's the word I'm looking for who have been labeled picky eaters, right? That's always a big one is my child's picky. They'll only eat, you know, maybe five different foods. Um, and there's this worry sometimes that the child is not getting the, you know, the vitamins or nutritional input that they need for their bodies. So how can, um, how can we go about making those suggestions to, to those families?
1: Yeah, for sure. So as a dietitian, I would do a thorough assessment of the family's health history and the child's feeding history and their diet history. And sometimes picky eating is related to a medical condition or a medical concern or maybe disordered eating or maybe some sp- swallowing difficulties. Um, But I would say more often than that, it's really a case of improving the feeding relationship between caregivers and parents and their children. And so for listeners today, if you aren't already aware, um, I would encourage looking up the Ellen Satter Institute. They have a really um, informative website and Ellen Satter has also written a number of books and there's webinars and all sorts of really great resources. But Ellen Satter... Uh, which is spelled E L L Y N S A T T E R. Just for those of you listening, I'll make and sure, sure to add up. a little story that maybe yeah. that on as well. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a bit of a. Um, Spelling things. So just pop that into Google and her website should come up. But she's a dietitian and family therapist who is basically like the leading um researcher when it comes to feeding children. Um and her eating competence model is considered like the gold standard. So that's what they're using at BC Children's Hospital and um, Yeah, so you might have heard the term division of responsibility before, but the division of responsibility is basically the backbone of what a healthy, positive feeding relationship would look like between caregivers and children. So very often when I have clients who come to me and their children are labeled as picky eaters, if there's not something more to it, like um, some sort of medical concern or condition, uh, very often, it's just about going back to the division of responsibility um, and improving the feeding relationship between caregivers and children, and also understanding what's normal. Totally normal for kids to go through phases where they only eat a few foods, or when they're really adventurous, and you're just like, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe my child is even eating this! Like, what? Where? Where did that come from?" These are all normal um, behaviors when it comes to eating for children.
0: All right. Thank you for clarifying that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I guess kind of just going off of that, um, I want to ask what if a child is refusing to eat something, Um, you know, again, because that can also be a concern that a lot of um, families, parents, caregivers um, might have. So what would maybe what would be a suggestion? um, Or what would you suggest as a dietitian?
1: Yeah, for sure. So going back to that Ellen Satter model that I was talking about just uh, before this, um and that division of responsibility so i'll probably just delve more into what that actually looks like okay. um so the division of responsibility so as caregivers and parents you are responsible for the wet the where, and the when of food. So you're responsible for what food is offered for that meal or snack. You are responsible for where that food is offered. For example, if it's at the dining table or at the snack table or on the picnic blanket, and you're also responsible for when food is offered. So you get to decide what time meals and snacks are, making sure that they're offered at regular times and that you're having sit down snacks in between meals as well. That's it. That's all that parents and caregivers are responsible for. And I realized saying that's it. That's a pretty big job making sure that there's food in the house and meals are prepped and snacks are made. But when it comes to if and how much they eat, that's up to children, that's their responsibility. So ideally you wanna stick to your jobs of feeding and you wanna trust children to do their jobs of eating. Sometimes that, that might mean that they eat a very little. Sometimes that might mean they eat a lot. Sometimes they're only gonna eat one food. Sometimes again, they're gonna surprise you and they're gonna eat a variety of foods or something they've previously refused. Ideally as caregivers and parents, your focus should be on keeping meal times pleasant and and relaxed and not focus so much on what or how much the child is eating. Okay. Um,
0: And I guess I almost want to ask then or make a statement that I've heard before. Maybe you can clarify with whether this is like a a good thing to go by. I've heard before from a a lot of people that children will not starve themselves. (laughs) They're going to eat when they're hungry is that a fair thing maybe to tell or to, you know, um, let, let families who are a little bit, you know, more concerned, know.
1: Yeah. So my advice, if, you know, your child is absolutely refusing anything to eat at that meal, ideally, you want to avoid as much pressure as possible. And when I say pressure, pressure can look, negative. It can look like consequences or punishments, or you have to eat three bites of your broccoli before you leave the table, or you can't have your ice cream until you eat this. Pressure can also look positive. It can look like, oh my gosh, Susie, I can't believe you tried the broccoli. That's so fantastic. Or mom's going to have a bite of this and mm, mm, this broccoli tastes so good or bribing or things like that. So ideally you want to avoid any and all types of pressure. And if the child is not eating at that meal or snack, totally fine. Uh, The meal time is done or the snack time is done and offering only water in between meals and snacks. So if the child, for example, refuses their lunch, they don't want to eat it. That's fine. They don't have to eat it. They get only water until the afternoon snack time. And if they come to you like, you know, a short while after the lunch meal, they go, but I'm hungry. It's, oh, well, that's all right. Unfortunately, the kitchen is closed, but our next snack is at 2 p.m. or 3 p.m. You may have some water between now and then. And that just allows them to have more structure, more regular meal and snack time so that they do arrive to the meal or snack predictably hungry and ready to eat.
0: So ideally, we're building those healthy eating habits from the beginning. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much for clarifying that. And I want to say that I think a lot of the times, um, maybe the fear, even like as a caregiver and I've, and I've dealt with this before as well is your fear is that you're going to starve a children or you're somehow neglecting a child.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, I can only imagine I'm not a parent myself, but I can only imagine as a parent that you're really worried about your child getting good nutrition and that they're not going hungry. But if you're doing your jobs of feedings, you're offering regular meal and snack times, you're offering a wide variety of foods, making sure your meals and snacks are balanced, then you can trust your child to do their job of eating, whether that's a little or a lot, or whether that's something that's concerning to you both ways. I've had parents come in and why won't my child eat I've had parents come in, my child eats way too much. So trusting that they can do their jobs with eating. Awesome. Thank you so much for clarifying that.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and now kind of going on f- off of food, I want to take this now to milk. Um, just because there are lots of questions about milk. Um, I can tell you right now, I come from a Latinx background, and milk is pushed on children from an extremely young age as necessary for every meal. And in the the Latinx community, there are a lot of milk babies. But what I find interesting is that here in North America, there seems to be sort of the opposite effect where many parents are choosing a dairy alternative um, for a variety of reasons. Um, and so I'm just kind of curious if one is better than the other, or if there is a way that we can offer milk that, uh, you know, but also support children in eating foods, as opposed to just filling up on milk.
1: Yeah, great question. And a very, very common reason why uh, children or babies or toddlers would probably get referred to a dietitian either that they're drinking a lot of milk and not a lot of foods, or that they're having a dairy all alternative. So just to remind everybody that's listening, the recommendation is that for parents who are able to, it is recommended to continue to breastfeed up to two years of age and beyond, or as long as works for both parent and child. Um, But in Canada, the recommendation is to introduce pasteurized whole fat, so 3.25% fat or homo milk, uh, uh, cow's milk between nine to 12 months of age, when the child is eating a variety of iron rich foods.
0: Mm.
1: So whole fat cow's milk is rich in protein and long chain fatty acids and the micronutrients that growing toddlers need for growth and development. Um, However, it it doesn't have any iron in it. So you do want to make sure that a child is getting a wide or a good variety of iron rich foods before you think about introducing whole fat cow's milk. Okay. So why? Uh, Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that term milk baby is generally means, you know, an iron deficiency caused by filling up on milk and not consuming enough iron rich foods. Okay. So my recommendation for those listening would be to only offer milk in an open cup. So no baby bottles for milk and try to pair it with a meal or snack. So offer milk with the breakfast or with the snack, um, offering only water in between meals and snacks. Mm -hmm. Um, And just as a guideline, you want to keep the intake of cow's milk less than three cups or 750 milliliters ml per day. So you don't want to go over that in terms of how, uh, how much and how often you're offering the milk. If you, as a parent or a caregiver, wish to offer an alternative to cow's milk, you can use pasteurized whole fat goat's milk, as long as it's had added folic acid and vitamin D. Um, But if a plant-based alternative is desired, the official recommendation from Health Canada is a soy-based commercial infant formula until two years of age, at which point you could switch over to a plant-based milk alternative like regular soy milk, for example. And this is to ensure that growing toddlers get the nutrition that they need for adequate growth and development. So if you don't wish to introduce cow or goat's milk at 12 months of age, then I would strongly recommend going and seeing a dietitian and working with them to make sure that your child is getting the nutrition that they need.
0: Okay. Awesome. I did not know that there was all that information about milk. So that in itself is really good to know. Yeah, for sure. Perfect. Um, And so kind of going off of that, I also want to know like, how can we go about maybe introducing new foods to children? Um, I know, you know, when uh, a per, you know when a parent has a baby, you know, the typical recommendation is maybe to start off with like you know the fully uh, pureed vegetables before you introduce the fruit, and then continue um, to introduce it, you know, regardless of whether or not there's the spitting out or or whatnot. But as a child gets older, um, I want to know like how can we continue this. I guess, trend of new food introduction.
1: Yeah. So just to clarify, are you wondering about new foods at the introduction of solids or after like when they're a bit older? Like, when they're in the-
0: yeah, maybe when they're a little bit older, you know, um, maybe when we're kind of going back to like this, this pickiness or even um, when we're introducing solids, you know? <laughs>
1: Okay. Yeah. So maybe I can start with the solids question and then we can move on to the older kind of toddlers and children. Okay. Um, my tip for introduction of solid foods for any, um, people out there with a, with a new baby or a baby around the six months of age is that you want to introduce solid foods, not a particular age. So not like on their six month birthday. Um, but you want to look for signs of developmental r- r- Readiness for solid foods. And so those signs would be having better head control, that they can sit up and lean forward, that they can s- signal to you or to the caregiver that they're full. So, for example, that they can turn their head away from the breast or from the bottle, that they can pick up the food and try to put it in their mouth, that they have a vertical jaw movement or a munching kind of action. Um, Some tongue protrusion when they're starting with the solid foods um, will but should decrease with experience Um, and they may still have an early gag reflux until around seven months of age. That would be considered normal. Mm -hmm. Um, And they often reject and reject unfamiliar foods a number of times. And so in terms of what you want to offer, you know, there's no real like strict rules of like offer this before that or make sure you only offer this. Uh, My recommendation was would just be to make sure that you're offering a variety of iron rich foods. So whether that's the iron iron fortified infant cereals or whether that's some, you know, soft cooked um, mushed up like ground meat or flaky fish or something a little bit more solid like that. Um, you do want to focus on more iron rich foods just because um, the iron stores from baby or sorry from mother only last baby up until about that six month mark. so you want to make sure that they're getting some from their diet. Okay. Yeah. And then in terms of introducing new foods to older children, my recommendation is to stick with family meals. So ideally, you want the entire family to be um, helping themselves from one family meal. So ideally, you want to be offering it family style. So for example, offering like, um, you know, the rice or the pasta in a dish on the table or the meat or The protein in a dish on the table and letting children and um, adults help themselves from what's on offer. So it wouldn't be that you're making a special thing out of introducing this new food, it would just be a part of the family meal that the rest of the family gets to enjoy as well at the same time. Okay. And my recommendation is pair familiar with unfamiliar food. So try to have at least one food on the table that is familiar for children that at least they could fill up on if they aren't feeling adventurous that day to try something new. So for example, that could be milk or it could be bread or it could be whatever that familiar food is for them. And absolutely no pressure for them that they have to try something new that day.
0: Okay. Awesome. Um, and now I almost want to ask what, how, cause I think sometimes, you know, there's this pressure of having to eat everything on your plate before you can have like dessert if there is a dessert that day. Um, but I have also seen, you know, in some blog posts, uh, you know, incorporating treats as part of your meal. Um, what, I guess, what's kind of the best, best practice
1: Yeah, for sure. So ideally, um, we want to have children grow up to be really relaxed and matter of fact about food. And that includes all foods, including the more, um, you know, quote unquote, fun foods or treats or whatever term you would like to use to describe them. But things like, you know, chocolate or cake or cookies or things like that. Um so we don't want those to have any special value or become this like really just valuable thing like, "Oh my gosh, if I make it through this broccoli, I'm going to get my ice cream." Yeah. <laughs> um we just want kids to be really relaxed about it. So ideally if you do want to include dessert with the family meal, whatever that looks like for your family, for some families they have dessert every day, for some families a few times a week, but ideally something Pretty regularly so that kids don't feel like it's an extra special occasion because they're having dessert. And the recommendation from the Ellen Satter model would be to serve dessert at the same time as the meal. So for example, um, if you're having dinner and you were going to have some cake for dessert, you would have a slice of cake out for every single person at the table that they can eat before dinner, during dinner, after dinner. Um, but they can enjoy that at any point during the meal.
0: Okay. I like that. That's awesome.
1: And I like how you
0: said it takes away that idea of it being like special or something to go through a marathon for. And now this is the reward.
1: Mhm mhm. Yeah, cuz I think very often um and again it comes from a really positive place of like, I really want my kid to eat their vegetables. or I really want my kid to grow up big and strong and smart and healthy um, and using food as a reward, particularly things like cookies or ice cream or stuff like that. And that really um, cements the idea of, okay, vegetables bad, ice cream good. Um, whereas ideally we want them to be including a wide variety of foods in a very relaxed and a matter of fact fashion.
0: Awesome. I like that. Thank you so much. Um, and now I kind of want to ask too, um, infants tend to be quite the messy little children as we all know, especially in the, uh, educated community. Um, but we, we want to know how can we as adults support them, you know, to be adventurous and to help learn those, you know, quote unquote table manners. Um, because there is, you know, I think a lot of times, you know, that big belief about the independence, the skill learning, um, from a young age that is important for a lot of families.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think that's totally fair. And I can only imagine, you know, wanting your child to behave themselves and be polite and be clean and not have a big mess to clean up after. But I think my biggest recommendation for parents and care givers, as much as possible, try not to sweat about it. So um, kids naturally have this internal drive to master things and grow up and be like you. And if you are eating, you know, the good family meals with your child on a regular basis, and you're role modeling the behaviors that you'd like to see, so using your utensils, using your napkin, saying please and no thank you, um, and not constantly up and down and running to the laundry or running to do this but just sitting down having a good family meal your child is going to see those behaviors and will pick up on those good habits now the one caveat is that a lot of parents and caregivers are using screens during meal times so if your child is busy watching the you know the TV or the phone or the iPad they're not going to be able to witness these good behaviors that you're role modeling so ideally no screens at meal times focus instead on connecting as a family and enjoying that time together. Awesome. I like how you brought up the screens because I think
0: that's also some, that is something that has been growing, um, you know, since technology has become more available. And I want to ask if it's maybe being used more as a distraction tool, than you know, something, I guess, to just have in the background during a meal.
1: Yeah, so I, I have a lot of parents who use screens because they feel either that it, you know, it helps their kid behave, um, it makes their kid come and sit at the table and stay at the table for longer, or because they feel like their child would not eat if there weren't screens in front of them. So they feel like it would it increases the amount that they eat. And I would really strongly discourage the use of screens. Obviously, there's gonna be those days, you know, where you go and see a movie and you're having some popcorn with the movie or, Times like that where it would be totally fine, and don't sweat or sweat about that type of screen time. But on a regular daily basis, ideally, you want screens to be away. You want to be connecting as a family. You want meal times to be enjoyable. Talk about your day, share stories, make jokes. Um, really, just connecting with your child, and this also allows them to focus on things like um, seeing your good table manners and practicing good table manners themselves. And also to be mindful of the food that they're tasting, actually taste the food and feel their hunger and fullness cues, which if they were watching a screen, I mean, I think (laughs) I I always laugh when I see kids in front of screens, because you can basically see like they're like zombies, like they (laughs) totally zonk out. So um, they wouldn't be as mindful or as aware of their own bodies or of the food that they're even tasting. I like that you brought up
0: awareness, Um, and I think maybe that's also where a lot of the overeating is coming from.
1: Yeah, maybe. Um, I've I've had it go both ways. So there's kind of like that mindless eating aspect where kids might be kids and adults actually might eat until past the point of feeling full because they haven't been paying attention to their body's hunger and fullness cues. But I've also had it where. The, the child or adult is so distracted by what's happening in that show or that game or movie or whatever that they're watching that they're not actually um, enjoying their meal. All
0: right. Well, thank you for clarifying that. Um, and now I want to bring this back to the ECEs or the teachers. Um, maybe you can give us some advice for meal prepping, um, because A lot of the times, um, and I think this really also depends on the curriculum or what um, the flow of your classroom is like, but sometimes, um, you know, early childhood educators or, uh, you know, educators in general may not have time to sit down, um, you know, warm up their food, uh, you know, or even have lunch, um, depending on what the flow of the day is like. So maybe you can give us some advice on, you know, some favorite snacks or, uh, what advice would you have for educators?
1: Definitely. Yeah. And again, I'm not an educator, so I don't really know what your schedule is like or all all of the millions of things that you're trying to do during your lunch hour, but I would encourage, you know, talking about role modeling behaviors, that this is an educational opportunity for you to sit with, kids and enjoy lunch or enjoy the snack time and show them what good table manners look like and what different meals look like. Maybe you're packing something that they haven't seen before. Um, so ideally, if you can, sharing a meal or a snack with the kids is going to obviously be really helpful for them. Um, but my advice for meal prepping, um, everybody's a little bit different. Some people love to, you know, prepare on a Sunday and kind of like batch cook a big thing of, um, you know, soup or stew or curry or something that they can eat for lunches through the week. So if that would work for your schedule, Sundays are pretty quiet and you don't mind spending an hour sort of cooking, um, for the week, that could be an option Um, But an option that I personally use, because I'm not that organized to spend my Sunday batch cooking, is I actually make intentional leftovers. So when I'm making dinner, I'm purposefully cooking more than I want for that meal so that I can take it for lunch the next day or for lunch the next few days. Um, So making intentional leftovers that you then kind of portion out for your lunches um, can be a really helpful tool as well. I like that. Um, any snack suggestions? Yeah, for sure. So for snacks, my recommendation is always for um, energy that you want to include a little bit of carbohydrate in your snack. So carbs are the gas for your car, the fuel for your tank. So some sort of carbohydrate with your snack, and ideally um, a protein alongside that. So protein is going to be what keeps you full for longer, kind of keeps that energy stable for longer, so you don't have that crash. Um, so think carbs and protein. So something like crackers and cheese, or fruits and nuts and seeds, or their um, butters, or Um, Another one, uh, Costco used to have these um, edamame beans that you could chuck in the microwave and those would be a great source of protein and fiber. Or even, you know, if you're really stuck and you just need something quick to grab, something like a snack bar, like Kind, Lara, RX bars are all really good examples of a nice snack bar that's easy to grab. Right, perfect.
0: Um, I guess with the snack bars, it would be trying to avoid anything that's too high in sugar.
1: Yeah, I mean, ideally, yes, you want something um, with more fiber and not quite as much sugar. So all of those brands I just mentioned are pretty good choices. Um, And again, ideally, you would want to have it with a protein. So either find a bar with some protein in it. So like a Simply Protein bar or the RX bars tend to have a bit more protein in them um, or have some protein with the bar. So, for example, you might have a Kind bar and uh, some Greek yogurt for example as your protein.
0: Awesome. Um, and so I, the Canada food guide was recently changed. What was it? Maybe three years ago. Um, and so I want to ask if there was anything that you could change in the new Canadian food guide, um, what would it be? Uh, or is it, or even wondering if the Canada Food Guide is too generalized, um, you know, especially here in Canada when people live in such differentiating climates um, or places.
1: Yeah, for sure. I actually really like the new Canada's Food Guide. I it's so much better than the rainbow that we had before. Um, so I it's remember actually, that being drilled into us in elementary <laughs> school. <laughs> um, I basically never used the food guide until they changed it. And now I actually do use it quite often because it is a really nice visual tool. So for those of you that aren't maybe as familiar with the food guide, it is that kind of more healthy plate model that shows, you know, quarter plate protein, quarter plate starches and grains and a half plate of vegetables um, and some fruit as well. there so i do like it as a good visual tool and i do like it is meant to be um like an online web-based um food guide so you can actually go there and they've got recipes and they talk about things like mindful eating and making sure you eat with others and the social connection around food so i think it's a huge huge improvement overall there are a couple of things that i would change um so the first is like when i look at the foods that they include in the food guide i'm seeing really um Uh, and I don't know how to put this, but more of like a Eurocentric food. So you're seeing things like broccoli and carrots and really kind of plain, almost quote unquote, like white person food. And so what would have been nice to see, because in Canada, we have such a wide range of different ethnicities and cultures and backgrounds. It would have been nice to see um, a variety of foods included, things that um, other cultures or other ethnicities ethnicities include in their diet. So I, I don't see that included in that picture. I don't know if maybe they could create multiple different plates and show even more different types of food. But it's something I always talk about clients with that, you know, you don't just have to eat these very plain vegetables and fruit or proteins or grains and starches that are on here, what you eat from your culture from your background can easily fit within this guide as well. So That's kind of the main thing or the biggest thing that I would change um, with the food guide that's so interesting
0: I you know and it's interesting I never would have looked at that plate and immediately thought of you know that Eurocentric narrative and I think that's just because it is so quote normalized Mm -hmm. yeah for sure yeah so yeah I I'm like floored by that point and I think and I think that's a fantastic point to bring up um and you know, maybe with that consideration, um, maybe there'll be another revision where we're a little bit more inclusive about, you know, different cultures and ethnicities.
1: Definitely. Hope. Hopefully when I have clients with different backgrounds or different eating patterns, um, that's a huge thing that I talk about is that you don't need to give up your culture to eat healthy. Absolutely not. You can eat healthy and, um, you know, eat the foods that are f- are culturally appropriate and familiar to you and that you like, you don't need to change over to this, um, more Eurocentric way of eating to eat healthy.
0: I love that Think Like, yeah, I love that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so to just kind of wrap, uh, up this interview, what I guess would be kind of like your go-to shopping store. Um, do you prefer outdoor farmers markets or even certain brands? Cause even with foods, it can be very marketed. <laughs> You know, especially when, oh yeah you know especially when we're talking about children right
1: yeah for sure there's so many claims on foods and so much marketing around food for sure um yeah I would say I shop wherever is closest and most convenient for me so I don't have any sort of like Specific place that I go or a specific store—it um, really just is whatever is close and convenient and whatever I'm I'm able to access. So whether that's a grocery store or a farmer's market, or sometimes I'm out in the Fraser Valley and I might see like a fruit stand or um, a local farmer stand. So I would go wherever kind of is. There and easy and convenient for me. And so I would say, again, like to eat healthy, you don't have to shop at Whole Foods and only buy organic and all of this kind of stuff. Eating healthy can be something that is more accessible and more affordable. You don't have to break the bank to do it. Um, and when I'm shopping, I love like exploring different foods and different things that are not, not familiar to me. Like for example, going into the produce section and picking out some sort of produce that I'm not familiar with and learning how to cook it and finding a recipe for it can be really exciting and very rewarding to me. I don't know if that's because I'm a food nerd and I'm a a dietitian, but um, that could be something that, you know, can be a fun and exciting experience for adults, but also sharing with kids like, okay, let's go and pick out one new food and let's look up how to try and cook it and let's cook it together and try it together. And that can be a fun, fun experience for the family to share in as well. I like that.
0: Um, and you were, you know, you're talking about, uh, like I just want to ask one more question. You were talking about, um, you know, we don't need to buy organic or just shop at Whole Foods, you know, to, to eat healthy. And I think that kind of, you know, comes back to this Eurocentric notion that we've been talking about, right. Or like the Instagram bloggers that, you know, just drink celery juice all day. <laughs> and we've yeah. been told, and you know, we were told, and we've been told this is the epitome of health. Um, I, for maybe for those, you know, families or even caregivers who may be, you know, who might be, um, you know, living paycheck to paycheck or, you know, may not have that financial security. Um, but you know, they still want to eat healthy, but you know, sometimes fresh fruits and vegetables can be, you know, on the pricier side than let's say canned or frozen. Um, you know, is that still a, is that still a good alter, you know, alternative if, you know. Financially, we cannot afford, you know, the fresh corn. Can I have the canned corn or the um, or the frozen corn?
1: Absolutely. So, frozen and canned is just as nutritious as fresh. In fact, depending on the season, the frozen and the canned option might actually be more nutritious than the fresh because those um, options have been picked and harvested harvested sorry (laughs) and canned or frozen at their peak uh ripeness when they're in season so in the off season actually the frozen and canned might even be more nutritious than the fresh but um to make things easy fresh frozen canned all nutritionally the same so if you can only afford frozen or canned by all means get get the frozen and canned um my one sort of thing about canned is ideally try and pick uh the lower salt or the no salt added canned foods because very often they can be higher in salt canned foods Um, or for fruit for example like canned fruit try and pick the canned fruit packed in water rather than packed in syrup or packed in concentrate that'll just help bring the sugar content down as well
0: okay awesome well, thank you so much. Um, I really enjoyed speaking with you. I think that this was such a wonderful interview and lots of questions and um, there's lots of clarification even on some on certain uh, topics.
1: Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed my time. And um, for anybody that's listening, if there's anything that wasn't clear, or you have more questions, or if you're interested in working with a dietitian, don't hesitate to reach out. I'm always happy. And um, I do try to respond to emails and calls as quick as possible.
0: Perfect. And you do have um, an Instagram page as well, right? For
1: started? Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, we have like a mildly successful Instagram account. So if you're interested in particularly pictures of food, but sometimes our faces do make an appearance, um, go and give us a follow on there. It's at Vancouver dietitians and just a little, um, side note dietitians is often misspelled. So there's no C in dietitian. It's D I E T I T I A N S. So if you can't find us, just check the spelling. Um, and we also have, um, we write blog posts and recipes and sometimes we host, um, give giveaways as well so yeah go ahead and give us a follow there we would really appreciate it
0: awesome well thank you so much uh you got definitely got a new follower in me and i'm sure (laughs) that many of our listeners will also start as well
1: yeah thank you so much for having me yes of
0: course thank you so much alex this was a great interview and again thank you so much also for even clarifying um i think a lot of questions that parents and caregivers may have, especially when it comes to regarding children and eating habits.
1: Yeah, great. I'm glad that I was able to do that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for
0: listening in on this week's episode of EC Honestly. If you have any questions or comments, send us an email at echonestly at gmail.com or DM us on Instagram at Honestly.